Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcast live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is a mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. My guest today is Alexis Ariano Sanborn, who is a producer, director of Nourishing Japan, a unique and insightful film about Japanese food education. Alexis is not just trying to tell us about Japanese school lunch programs, but also to inspire us to start dialogues about the importance of healthy meals for life. And Alexis also appeared on episode 98 as a, a Washoku Good Program Coordinator at Table for Two USA. So she is no doubt one of the most knowledgeable people about Japanese food education in the US as well as in Japan. So today we'll discuss how she got into Japanese culture, why she decided to make film about Japanese food education, what the film is about, what we can learn from the Japanese system, and much, much more. But before we start, um, on Wednesday, January 17th, from 6 to 8.30 p.m., I will be ho- hosting a, a physical event, not on the radio, uh, but a physical event in Bushwick, Brooklyn, called A Taste of Japan Eats. And my past guests will join me to serve delicious shochu, sake, kaiseki, ramen, other delicacies. So hopefully you, you all can join me and see me in person. So for tickets, please go to uh, heritageradionetwork.org slash a taste of Japan needs. Again, it's heritageradionetwork.org, a taste of Japan needs. And it's on Wednesday, January 17th from 6 to 8.30. So I'll see you there. And one more um, I'm pleased to let you know that um, 2018's first sumo stew is going to be held in San Francisco on the next day of the Taste of Japan Eats on Thursday, January 18th from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. at uh, Smoke uh, Smokestack at uh, Magnolia Brewing in San Francisco. So as you may know, sumo stew is a seasonal live streaming event of sumo matches straight from Japan. And you can enjoy Japanese food from outstanding restaurants. And you watch the matches and have fun conversations with friends. Then tickets are available at smostew.com. That is S-U-M-O-S-T-E-W.com, smostew.com. And for Japanese listeners, there's a $10 off discount code. That is uh, Japanese10. Um, that's the, the code is Japanese10 and 10 is uh, numerical. So uh, hopefully you can join smostew. Now let's uh, start. Let's start a conversation with Alexis. So welcome back, Alexis. Hi, Akiko. It's great to be back. Okay. So, um, so first of all, uh, where are you from, and um, 
What did you eat when you grew up <laughs> at school? Yeah, so I'm um, I'm from California originally. I grew up um, up until middle of high school in a small community called Fairfield. And then when I was in high school, we moved to Sacramento, which is the farm to fork capital of the United States, you may know. Mm-hmm. And um, But always, whether it was in Fairfield or Sacramento, I grew up um, surrounded by agriculture. Um, Fairfield was very close to the wine country, Napa Valley, mm-hmm. and Sacramento is, you know, the, the fruit basket of so much of the United States. Mm-hmm. So I really, um, in hindsight, you know, as an adult, you realize just how much um, the natural environment and being, um, you know, so easily accessible to local food stands and mm. really fresh food uh, impacted me. So, um, and I watched uh, Lady Bird, the movie. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was so happy about that movie because it. Sacramento is really a lovely place, and I hope more people can visit. And also, um, in in Fairfield and in Sacramento, there's a very large uh, Japanese and Japanese American community. So mm-hmm. um, I was also introduced to Japanese culture there. But um, as to your second question, what did I um, eat when I grew up? I come from an, an Italian American background. So uh, Aliano Sanborn, Aliano, my, my mom's side is from Sicily, and my dad's side is, you know, American mutt. And I grew up eating, you know, homemade spaghetti sauce. Um, but also beef stew and kind of, you know, meat and potatoes kind of food in a way. And as far as what I ate at school, a lot of my memories are of, you know, my mom packing me um, crackers and summer sausages and and some fresh fruit or maybe tuna salad or something like that. But I actually, I didn't eat school lunch growing up. Mm. Um, I uh, My mom packed my lunch, which in hindsight, you know, Good for her. It's it's a tough thing to have to do every day. Mm, right, I understand. Right. So, but then specifically, you got you know surrounded by Japanese American community. But then there's something special about Japanese culture that uh, you got specifically interested in. Yeah. So I, um, you know, up until the age of thirteen, I I uh, wasn't really sort of aware of of Asia so much, you know, I was, I had other things that I was interested in and fascinated with, but, um, the first, my first interest, like so many millennials my age was really, um, through anime and, um, specifically, you know, I'll say it on the radio, it was through Sailor Moon (laughs) and, um, but I often like to say that anime was the spark that lit my interest in Japan, but really what kept my interest throughout over a decade of study has been, um, seasonality and the Japanese appreciation of nature and um, of the natural environment. And so that was something, the more I studied Japan beyond anime, the more I came to realize that is so much a part of their culture. Mm. Right. And I even started uh, learning Japanese. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. So um, when I was in middle school, I had my mom uh, drive me out to Diablo Valley College about 30 to 40 minutes away from my house. She was a good mom. And I took it during the summertime uh, in middle school. And then when we moved to Sacramento, um, I ended up taking night classes at uh, Sacramento City College for two years before I went to college. And then I was able to continue studying it once I went to wow. college. That's a big commitment. I was passionate. Why is he able to read uh, original anime in yeah, Japanese? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's, it wasn't until uh, I had an opportunity to go there and you hear it spoken more and you're really immersed in the culture that, like, you can begin to understand anime. Because even anime has very specialized language that you don't hear every mm. day. It's, it's got a certain, certain right. words and things <laughs> like that. Right. Okay. So 
actually, though, let's let's talk about your time spent time in Japan because you spend a lot of time in Japan. Right. I, I have spent a fair amount of time in Japan, yeah. So the first time I went there was when I was 14 through a sister cities program between Fairfield and、uh, Nirasaki City in Yamanashi Prefecture.、Mm-hmm. And so I was there for two weeks with a homestay. And、um, that was, you know, an amazing, magical time for me. And then the second time, I went through、um, AFS, American Field Service, when I was 18. And I stayed there for a summer doing a Japanese language intensive. And I lived in Kasugai in a house with、um, three five year old triplets. So it was, it was, it was、uh, fun. And then I went, I studied abroad in,、um, in college for、um, almost a year. And then、um, I Went on the JET program, and in 2012, I was an intern at the Nagoya US consulate there. So、um, I've experienced Japan you know, as a student, as a professional,、um, as a traveler. Right, and for a long time too, from a young age. Yeah, from a young age, from 14 through the present.、Mm, very impressive. Right, so、um, what is your relationship to Japanese food? Like, you know, when you went to Yamanashi, you know,、uh, spending two weeks, did you have any cultural shock or anything? Yeah, so Japanese food and I,、um, it's always been interesting. Like I said, you know, remember, I, I grew up in a meat and potatoes kind of household and, you know, very sort of typical American types of food. We didn't, I don't think I remember us eating a lot of fish growing up. And if we did, I'm sure I didn't like it. I was, I was, a, picky, I was a picky eater. And、um, Japanese food、uh, is so, you know, It's difficult to imagine. Here we are in Bushwick, right around the corner.、Um, there's a sushi restaurant. You know, Japanese food is so much more of a、uh, part of our culture, especially in urban cities, than it is,、um, than it was, say, 10 years ago or when I was a child, 15 years ago. And、um, I actually really didn't like Japanese food.、Um, it was, I found the flavor strange. I found the texture strange. I found it very fishy. It was completely foreign. And Um, I had a really hard time with it, which was so terrible because I love Japanese culture so much. And I've always been into food and I've always loved to bake and cook and all sorts of things. But it was so difficult for me as a kid to like Japanese food. And I remember dragging my parents to restaurants and me wanting to try all the food and,、um, and inevitably like, getting what I ordered and being like, not able to eat it.、Mm, so. Interesting because when I grew up, In Japan, actually, I didn't like Japanese food at、mm. all. And I was looking for something Western. Yeah. And then I think the more your palate is more diversified and matured, you can discern different things. And then、yeah. you just sense where this fishness comes from, the history, and then you've studied to admire. Also, and also, you begin to get used to it as well, too. You know, if,、mm. if, if it's something you've never experienced in your life and you've had it a couple of times, you know, you know what it's about.、Mm. Right. Interesting. So, obviously, you are really into Japanese food now. Yes,、yeah, so now it's like a complete 180, though, though there are still certain things that I, you know, I find、uh, difficult, like, like natto and,、mm. and uni, sea urchin. But、uh, in general, I love Japanese food now. So,、um, I had a、uh, complete transformation, I suppose you could say.、Mm. Okay, by the way, then I think、uh, uni and natto can be. You know, disliked by many Japanese people too. So you're not the only one. Well, I had natto a few nights ago, and、uh, it was done in 
quite a way that like it actually made me really like it. So anyone can change. <laughs> okay, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> right. Okay. So um, yeah. So you spent two years uh, on the jet program. Yes. Right. So it's uh, in the Shimane. Shimane Prefecture. prefecture yes. Which is a uh, coastal western side near Hiroshima. Yes. So it's really um, not in the city. Correct. Right? Correct. So how uh, was the first time you observed how school lunches? Served? Yes, um, totally. When I had been in Japan before, I had visited schools, but I had never been there during like the school day and partaken in the lunch. And um, I had heard about school lunches in Japan when I was getting ready for the JET program, but um, you know, really didn't know what they looked like, really didn't know the types of food they included. I was actually a bit scared about them. <laughs> I was really nervous about the possibility of having to eat these things because um, as a teacher in Japan on the JET program or whatever program you're on, you know, usually you're expected to eat these lunches if you're there during the lunch period. And of course, I wanted to participate in it, but I was also, I was very nervous. Mm, right. Um, well, that's interesting. So um, for listeners who are not really familiar with how different Japanese school lunch system works, maybe yeah. you can just go through what happens, like, you know, they ring the bell, 12 o'clock, what happens? Yeah, yeah. So um, they ring the bell, 12 o'clock, um, the kids uh, clean off all their desks, they go and they, they wash their hands. There's basically um, two groups of kids. Uh, one group is kind of the kid that the the groups of kids that are in charge of um, bringing the meal to the classroom and the other the other group of students are those who kind of like hold down the fort and arrange the desks and everything else like that and and in Japan the meals either are cooked from scratch in the buildings in schools or they are brought in fresh every day from a school lunch center and um, for uh, you know from first grade through sixth grade um, children. Um, for a very long time, uh, learn how to distribute the lunch, learn how to bring it to their classroom, learn how to be part of the, the actual, you know, physical distribution of getting the meal from this large uh, container onto your plate in individual size um, servings. So in a way you could say like they're the school lunch ladies, uh, even though there are people who cook it in the school. And um, so the meals themselves, um, you know, first graders obviously need more assistance and help than fifth graders, but it, uh, you know, throughout the years, children become more and more, um, you know, capable and a part of this. And what they eat are, you know, all sorts of different things, but mainly uh, three to four times a week, it's going to be rice and some soup and side dishes and um, fresh ingredients. You know, we can talk about this a bit later, but it's... Um, you know, everything is, is very fresh, very, you know, mm -hmm. calorically balanced. And so it's not like getting a slice of pizza or um, a hamburger. It's like it's a v what has been prepared is, you know, nutritionally structured, calorically structured to be a balanced mm -hmm. meal. And that's what and they're distributing. They actual calories and what vitamins is included you know, today's meal, yes. that kind of information. Too. Yes, that information is provided in advance. Um, you know, at a, a lot of schools, the students get um, a monthly sort of calendar of the meals themselves, like what they can expect on each day. So, um, you know, there might be themed meals and things like that, but included next to each meal is information about you know, how many calories, uh, depending on the the sort of size or um, level of grade you are if you're a lower lower like first through third or fourth through fifth and then how many you know 
how much iron's in it, how much calcium's in it, and uh, what are the ingredients that provide that. So the kids, you know, even if they're not necessarily paying attention, like over the course of their elementary school career, you know, they learn that, okay, um, hijiki, this type of uh, seaweed, um, has a lot of iron, or they learn that calcium comes from milk or those types of things. They just absorb it. Mm. So um, that they know what to look forward to every day. And in some cases, if some an ingredient or a food item they don't like is coming up, they know, okay, right. they, they can mentally prepare for it. Right. And is there's a peer pressure. And I was, I was nervous when I had, saw something on the plate I didn't like, but I have to finish. Yes. And then, I understand completely. Yeah. And then I finished. I feel like I won the yeah. game or something. Yeah. Yeah, um, I remember um, in school lunches that I ate in Shimane, they oftentimes like to do this sort of, um, uh, I would say like a gomai uh, salad type thing, but they use natto in it. So it's like mm. it's like a spinach salad with natto mixed in. And it was, when I ate that, I, I felt <laughs> like I was winning. <laughs> oh, that's it. You need some sake or yeah. some other complicated yeah. flavor to pair with because natto and uh, sesame yeah. and spinach, that's very challenging, yeah. even for those, I think. Yeah, but so funny. So um, just one uh, little deviation, but I remember leftovers. Mm. You know, people, some kids fight for it. Yeah. If you're still hungry. Yeah. And then, Usually the boys. Yeah, but, but then the girls, uh, pretty girls, Still hungry, but they she, they are really reluctant mm. to just fight for it. Yeah. So it's like, you know, they ask boys, "Can you just?" They they usually mm. win with the box scissors and paper. Yeah. yeah. So the pretty girls said, "Can you just get the bread?" And the boys are really excited, and they get the bread. <laughs> and like what every day there's a little love scene in games. Yeah, all's yeah. fair in love and war and food. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. So that was really cute. But anyway, so. Um, so I heard that uh, uh, you created a menu for Christmas Day while you were on Jet Program. Yes. So what was it about? Yeah, so I was asked by um, one of the nutritionists at one of my schools. She wanted to introduce, you know, what's a typical sort of Christmas meal that you would have with your family. And, of course, you know, at least in my family, every year it kind of changes a little bit. But there are certain things you eat around the holidays. And so I wanted to introduce... Um, flavors from my family. So we had um, pork and apples, mm-hmm. some sweet and savory. We had some chocolate pudding, which I grew up eating um, blancmange, uh, and my mom would always make that. And potato leek soup, I had gotten really into making that, and uh, my sister really liked it. So that was also on the menu. And then um, it came with bread and then some vegetables as well to kind of round it out. And the students, um, I think they were really interested and exciting, uh, excited when uh, this lunch came out because uh, it was a li- it was a little different. The inclusion of of the the pork and apples in particular, the idea of eating the sweet and the savory with the meat, the fruit with the meat, I think was really um, for some of for some of the kids they really enjoyed it. They they were like, oh, actually, this is really good. And then other other kids like ate it separately. Mm. Um, but I was I was still really happy that. Um, that it ends up being made. And the pork, you know, I was thinking it was going to be more like pork chops or some sort of roast pork, but it ended up almost being like a Chinese style pork in a way, but it worked. <laughs> it was really good. So uh, it was a blend of East and West and mm. everyone was happy. It's interesting how food can connect the culture yeah. very easily and yeah. then straightforwardly. Yeah. So, so I, I would imagine your students that time still remember your meal. I hope so. Right. I hope they, they like pork and apples because of it. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, it wasn't until sort of hindsight that I realized like, wow, this special opportunity that I had been given to create a meal and a menu. Mm. And this was something that had taken months of, you know, figuring for the, for the person to figure out the recipe and for um, them to plan it and get all the ingredients and stuff like that. Mm. And knowing, knowing more about the process of making school lunch. Now I know that that was something very special. Mm. Right. Um, you know, to be honest, I didn't get an idea of brown bag because I was so used to having school lunches. Mm. I mean, hundred percent that you have to go to school, then you have to eat the school lunches. So it's in, I think the emphasis on school lunches in Japan is way more than here. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but school lunches in Japan in a lot of cases are mandatory. So, mm. um, you know, if you go to a school and they have this lunch, it's, it's expected that you eat it. Whereas here in the United States, um, you know, you have the choice and that is, you know, one of the fundamental differences for good or ill. Mm-hmm. Right. And also, I think, uh, like you said, it's mandatory because it's a uh, part of teaching. Yeah. Yes. Right? It's beyond. It's like a, as, as much as math or language. Mm-hmm. You have to learn how yeah, to. Lunchtime is, uh, is regarded as a class time just like any other. And that's, I think, one of the reasons they also have it in the classroom, you mm. know, um, to sort of maintain that atmosphere of learning right and the teachers eat eat as well they eat the same thing right and together they they eat together right so and that means that you have to be tasty for the adults too yes that's that's true um you know i think that the lunches um are flavorful for anyone you know regardless of the age and here in the united states we have ideas of like children's menu and things like that but you you rarely see that in japan and i think just the idea that food is can be appreciated no matter the age and can be tasty no matter the age is mm-hmm. one of the great things right that reminds me of uh you know some sometimes i see all those facebook posting and you know the internet things that if you go to stay at the hospital mm. you're hospitalized still food is pretty good i yeah, i think I, I think i saw the same one and i thought that that it looked re- that hospital food in japan looked really good so it's like no matter i think also at, at, at jails as well too the food the food is quite good so so no matter school hospitals um company cafeterias you know food is just generally more valued it's not just simply energy it's something to be enjoyed mm. and and savored mm, that's why uh, all those uh, fast food and convenience store fast food also, t- also tastes good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, so do all, you know, the, this question is about who's governing the Japanese school education, the food education. Is uh, this the national level or the local level? So, I mean, it's kind of a mixed bag. In um, Japan, there are, um, you know, there is a national law of food education and certain caloric standards that need to be met. But then on a local level, um, I think is where it's more you know, every system, every situation is different. Um, the way Nagoya City handles how it creates school lunch um, is different from where I spent my time in sh- um, in Shimane. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the the structure of the caloric contents and the nutritional contents are 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 similar, are are the same, but um, how it is created, how it is distributed, um, the different um, menus and things that um, are set. Uh, are held on a much more, are decided on a much more local level. Mm, right. So those are the basic principle uh, set by the government. Yes. Right. And I heard there's a new uh, law uh, came into effect in 2005. That's right. Yeah. The basic law on food education. And um, that basically 
um, came about to bas- basically formalize some of the practices that were already in place in a lot of in a lot of schools throughout Japan. Um, increasingly, throughout the '90s and into the 2000s, a lot of schools were beginning to do food um, educational activities, growing, growing, having garden plots, um, having you know having cooking classes in the school. But there really wasn't as much of a sort of a, a national understanding or agreement that that this would be sort of, um, implemented into the classroom setting, and that um, new positions were actually created. These types of um, uh, guidance nutritionists in a way that could work with the teachers at the school, say like your homeroom teacher, and work with them to come up with the ways that food education could be incorporated into the uh, curriculum. So if, say for example, students are learning about um, traditional rice growing practices, um, which is the basis of Japanese food and culture, uh, you know, the this individual, this um, sort of nutritional coordinator would work with the homeroom teacher for the kids to be able to grow grass and buckets in the classroom and learn about harvesting and learning about sort of rice paddy culture and the ecosystem and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it it really combines the disciplines of so many, so many areas, science, biology, history, um, home economics and things like that mm. um, into a more sort of acknowledging that, you know, food plays a role in all of this. And um, there's no, you know, um, national textbook, but mm. there are guidelines and there are, there are textbooks and resources that, that the, that the coordinators use and that the homeroom teachers use. Um, but there's no like food studies, mm. um, sort of, you know, math, like you, like you would have a math book or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's a very integrative practice. Mm. So that's, of course, uh, the coordinators who are, I believe is, uh, someone who's knowledgeable about nutrition yeah. and the background, food background. Yeah. They come to school. They come to the schools. Yeah. Some of them work at multiple schools. Um, others might work at just one school, depending on how, how big the, the school is. But um, they have to have this sort of specialized knowledge and background in nutrition. Mm. So maybe a couple hours a semester, things like that. They come and teach them. Yeah, or more. Um, it could be. It could be every week. They might come. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So it's a lot of it's a lot of commitment on the local. On the local level. Mm. Right. Okay. So. Um, well, let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll uh, delve into Alex's film, Nourishing Japan. So please stay with us. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese Broadcasting Live from a Studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Toki Kukatayama, and my guest today is Alexis Ariano Sambon, 
who is a producer and director of Nourishing Japan, a unique and insightful film about Japanese food education. So, um, so uh, we talked about the whole different aspects of Japanese food education compared to other countries.、Uh, so, how did you decide to make a documentary about Japanese food education? So, the story of Nourishing Japan、um, really is a personal story for me. And、um, it comes back again to my own、uh, relationship with Japanese food. And as I mentioned before the commercial break,、um, we, I grew up not liking Japanese food that much. And I had been to Japan three, three or four times before I was on the JET program, and I'd lived there in a variety of ways. But when I was there, I only ate, I only ate what, I,、um, what I enjoyed eating. Um, I wasn't forced to try new things. And when I became a teacher on the JET program and I had to eat school lunch every day,、um, gradually I learned to like things that I didn't like before. And learning to like came from, and th- then came into learning to love. And then the next thing I knew, I was making Japanese food at home.、Mm. And so this process was relatively quick. You know, it was within two years of. Um, eating this type of food. Now, granted, I'd been to Japan before and I knew, you know, I was more familiar with the flavors, but this eating kyushoku, eating school lunch was really immersive. And at the end of that experience, I thought, wow, I'm a 24 year old American, you know, raised in California,、um, meat and potatoes kind of gal, and、um, I've been changed so much. And imagine the power that food has, imagine the power that food education has on children who start from the first grade. Through the sixth grade.、Mm-hmm. And so that was, sort of the, that was sort of the initial sort of inspiration. And、um, right after JET, I went to graduate school. I did my MA at Harvard University, and I ended up writing about school lunch for my master's thesis. And at that time, I was still looking at sort of the, the kids, really, you know, what, what were they getting out of it,、mm-hmm. um, which I think is really important. But then over the, I graduated in 2013, and、uh, over the past、um, four years, I've been thinking about. I've been thinking about different angles about food education, and really I've become、um, fascinated by the, the infrastructure and the dedication of the people who、um, make this system possible. Because children have this opportunity to have these great and tasty meals, they have this opportunity to learn about food education, but that's only through the You know, the, the general sort of buy in of Japanese society、mm. as a whole. You know,、mm. the farmers agree that this is important.、Um, the parents agree that this is important.、Um, the teachers agree. And of course, you know, there are, there are hiccups and, and issues that, that, you know, might come up along the way.、Um, but in general, this food education as a whole is very much supported. And so every time I was talking to people about Japanese food and,、um, School lunch and food education, especially for people who have never been to Japan, they would, also, they would often you know, be quite confused by everything I was talking about. Like, what do you mean the kids bring the food into the classroom and the kids eat together and the meals are made fresh and all this kind of stuff? And I realized very early on, even while I was writing my master's thesis, that this is something that needs to be seen to be understood.、Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just write about it. And so I'd always wanted to do, I'd always wanted to show. School lunch and food education in some way. And um, in 2017, um, actually 2016, I decided to take the leap、mm-hmm. and I was waiting for 
you know, some sign, I suppose you could say, like that this was the time. Um, and I realized that, you know, that that wasn't going to come unless I Mm. unless I decided to do that mm. unless I decided to sort of take fate in my own hands that's a deep message <laughs> <laughs> It, there is no time best time for anything yeah <laughs> yeah and um, you know there had been I just thought I, I want to tell this story and I want to share it with people and the longer I wait the harder it's going to be for mm. for you know the connections that i have in japan are you know going to fade i you know i did jet program however many years ago i have to continue um to maintain those connections and to so that i can give something back i think mm -hmm. that was also another thing of wanting to give something back you know mm -hmm. i have this this knowledge What am I going to do with it? Right. Well, this, uh, you know, so far we've been talking about, you know, your background to up to this point. But then sounds like you really paved your own way to create this movie. So to, to me, it makes sense. And the time just hit in 2016, probably. Yeah. yeah. Right. The other thing I really wanted to mention is that, you know, in Japan, school teachers are really well respected. Yeah. It's not like, you know... Uh, low paid or whatever it's it's really they have responsibility they're really re regarded and they're i think they try to be a good model yeah and so that's another foundation to support not just the school education food education but the whole system i think yeah i think that's definitely true um i was just emailing with someone this morning and they were saying they've always been so um intrigued by japan makes things possible that other countries think are impossible and i think food education is one of those things you know having the ability to have these fresh meals the ability that um everyone works together in support of the children and it's really a, a by it's really through the support of and the respect of the teachers of education is something important it's all it's all interconnected mm -hmm. and the the respect that education holds And the, the fact that they're able to implement these things. And the parents, for the most part, are like, yeah, that's a great idea. Mm, right. Okay, so uh, so let's talk about uh, the Nourishing Japan itself. So what is the theme? So the theme to Nourishing Japan um, is the Japanese word kancha, mm -hmm. which I translate as somewhere in between gratitude and appreciation. Mm. Um, it is a respect and awareness of the people around you, of your, of your place in society, of things that happen to make you possible, whether that's the fact that, you know, an animal had to die or that, um, the environment that your house that was built on, you know, that, that you can't take anything for granted mm. and that you should have an appreciation. And that theme I only realized upon going to Japan last summer um, and interviewing lots of different people. And the one word that they just kept on bringing up all the time was kancha. Mm. And the sense that it's important that children understand our interconnectedness mm. and that everything you do, even what you eat, has an impact. And you can't, you can't take this one thing for granted. Right. It, it didn't come out of nothing. Interesting. So, yeah, it's a, I think it's a foundational idea for, I would say, the most majority, really the majority of Japanese people. Like, um, you are given 
anything. You're surrounded by anything that's given by, I don't know. Like, um, for instance, my father is a, he used to be a monk when he was mm-hmm. little. But I went to Catholic high school. Like, all those things. But regardless of the name of the God, you're always given. So you have to always thank you. And I think the bowing is a part of Japanese culture yeah. because I think it's unconsciously people really thinking the kansha, you know, that concept is um, part of human being. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that the kansha is a theme because that's really underlying value in the Japanese entire society. And, and specifically, you know, I want to look at the people who make food education possible because um, it's through the belief of the people and their, their be- belief that food education is, is a concept that is important that children learn that this all is happening in the first place. You mm-hmm. know, you don't have to have food education in classrooms. Kids can survive without necessarily learning these things. But they believe in something more important beyond that, mm-hmm. um, that it's important that they learn about these things. And um, a lot of people have dedicated their lives and careers to this. And um, I mean, I know it's the same here in the United States. We have great supporters of food. And I'm not saying that that's not the case anywhere else in the world. But um, Japan's been doing some great things. And I wanted, I wanted to look at the people uh, and feel gratitude towards them who make it possible. Mm. So who did you interview? You, those, those, you know, players. Yeah. So the goal of last summer, I went to Japan to kind of do a sort of investigative uh, type of reporting. I'd wanted to go and talk to people, actors in the field, um, to get their opinion to help frame the the film itself. And I wanted, to the degree that I was able, I wanted to kind of interview as many people as possible in the production of School Lunch from the field to the government. Mm. And so I interviewed um, farmers. I interviewed principals at at an elementary school. I interviewed the nutritional coordinator, the homeroom teacher, Mm. the the cooks who cook the food. I interviewed someone at at City Hall who helps to coordinate all the different, um, uh, you know, ingredients coming in and out and working across all the different departments as well as coming up with um, the menu planning uh, for that month. I talked to um, journalists who write a school lunch magazine. It's like an industry specialist magazine. So for people who cook school lunches, giving them ideas and things like that. And I talked to them. I talked to um, researchers, uh, people who have more of a scientific background. And I also talked to um, an individual, Hattori Yukio, or mm-hmm. Yukio Hattori. And um, I've nicknamed him the godfather of food education mm-hmm. in my well, head. Actually, he's, uh, I think, one of the best. He, he's uh, the son of the founder yeah. of the biggest... Uh, Nutrition college. Right. Yeah, the Culinary Institute. Yes. Right? And Tsuji and uh, Hattori, they are the two biggest, I think, in Japan. So... And he's really big in yeah. school education, food yeah. education. He was, you know, instrumental in the passage of the law that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. He helped to kind of um, make it possible and move it forward and was involved in, you know, getting in the weeds of what this mm-hmm. what this law was all about. So I was able to interview him as well. And um, my time was short, but um, it really helped to open my eyes into um, how much work there is left to do and all the people that make it possible even more and there's even more that you know i didn't have a chance to talk Mm. to 
Okay. And by the way, you know, the I was reading all those Japanese governments, why they started this, uh, you know, initiative of the new school and uh, mm. food education. And then the problems, uh, there are a couple of several problems, but it's interesting people started to be more obese and they yeah. rely too much on non-Japanese food. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, the local farmers. Yeah. So it's uh, partly it's uh, preserving the traditional style of cuisine mm. to keep you healthy and also supporting local farmers. So it's beyond just a school yeah. education. Yeah, it's really... Um, and that's what I think it's one of its key uh, successes is, is that it's not just something that's happening in schools. It's It provides economic vitality mm-hmm. to the community. And all these food education-related activities, you know, make communities vibrant. Mm-hmm. Right. So, well, that's sustainable in, and, as a society. Yeah. As a name for it. Okay. So, um, so why do you think uh, this story about Japanese food education should be told to non-Japanese audience? So I think there hasn't been, um, there have been some uh, works that have looked at food education or school lunches specifically in Japan, but there hasn't been much that looks into the people who make it possible or even examining like what this food education thing in Japan is Mm -hmm. in the first place. And I, and Really, rather than this being a technical um, type of documentary, I want it to be more of a story of people working together to make something possible and showing that if, you know, this is one country's example of, of their successes and certainly that there are hurdles that they that they have to deal with. But, you know, when you work together, that anything is possible and that the, the themes of... Um, food education are not just about meeting some nutritional guideline. It's about something deeper and in a way more spiritual and trying to impart that um, more holistic view across the world, I think certainly couldn't be a bad, Mm. be a bad thing. And so ultimately it's a story of hope and transformation that I hope will, you know, positively uh, shape the dialogue that we in the United States have about food education, may, maybe make us look at our own plate a little bit different, understanding, you know, all the people who were involved to make the, a meal in front of us possible, from the waiter to mm-hmm. the labor in the field. Um, and to also introduce another country's way of looking at food. Mm, right. And the food comes first before anything. Yeah. Right. So, so what kind of messages do you hope that the audience will receive from the film? I hope that they will um, understand that everything takes time and effort and labor and that um, food education is something that we can all, um, how do you say, that food education is something that everyone works together for and is a universal message that can be applied um, no matter what the field and that the message is really that we want to to go back to the idea of kancha and gratitude and appreciation that the food that is put in front of us is something that we should cherish and that our environment is something that we should cherish and the people that surround us are something that we should cherish. Mm. Right. So hopefully those messages will be uh, translated into 
non-Japanese cultural languages? I think they're universal messages, so I hope so. Right. Okay. So um, now you're running a Kickstarter program? That's right. And yes. to finalize the film. That's right. So yeah. tell us about the campaign. Yeah. So, um, you know, last summer I was in Japan doing this initial filming. But um, there's only so much you can do uh, when you're an independent researcher. And so this project is, this Kickstarter, I am crowdfunding to um, raise funds for production in Japan in summer 2018. So um, me and the team are hoping to go back to Japan, conduct some follow-up interviews, but also meet new people in the field and expand on what we were able to do last summer. I'm hoping that... Uh, in particular, I'm hoping to go somewhere uh, new that we hadn't been last summer, which is the northeast region, the Tohoku region that mm. was impacted by the tsunami, because I've read some very inspiring articles about um, cooks and uh, food educators who, after the tsunami, got the, the school meals up and running within a month. Mm. They were very basic school meals, but but there was that you know dedication that food is something more than just... Uh, energy it, it's it's something you know, having a warm meal is something much more mm -hmm. spiritual and can and make you feel whole so i'm hoping that we can do that and um and then um launch launch into post-production in later in 2018 right wow great so how can we support yeah so you can support by um checking out the trailer the trailer is awesome it has um it's a preview of a lot of the themes that um, we've just talked about and to give a visual of um, just what this project is and you can go to nourishingjapan.com and the trailer is there and also there is a link to the kickstarter so if you're feeling generous you can donate uh, to the campaign we're trying to raise twelve thousand dollars a minimum of twelve thousand dollars and then um, and then the funding will be a success Great. So what's the deadline for the, the funding? So the funding is, uh, the campaign is 30 days and it ends on February 3rd. Okay. So definitely, um, you know, within the next two weeks or so, check out the trailer, consider a donation, any little bit helps. Right. So it's uh, the website nourishingjapan.com. Nourishingjapan.com. Right. And That's also right. you can go to Kickstarter. That's right. And then search for Nourishing in Japan yep. as well. Great. Okay. So uh, good luck. Thank you so much. And look forward to uh, uh, seeing the film. I'm so excited. Um, so glad I could come here and share it with you. And, um, you know, in the future, I, um, I'm excited to, to make the film as well. Yeah, it's a, this room uh, studio is full of great energy. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, so listeners, uh, if you have any questions or comments about the show uh, or suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org. And Japanese is uh, live on, at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes and Stitcher, and now on Spotify as well. Today's show engineer was David Tseore, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, 
at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.